All right. Kids, you're going to go right upstairs in a second, but I wanted to do what I did last time and let you guys be in on the opening. So here's what I want, and I want you to raise your hand, and if I call on you, I need you to say it real loud, okay? Can you can you talk real loud? Yeah. Yeah, Levi can. I can hear him. Okay, yes. She's my little dancer up here. Y'all need to figure out how to get into worship by watching this little girl right here. All right? She was into it, man. We need to give you some streamers. I've been to charismatic churches, man. They got streamers and stuff. So, all right. So here's my question. And you got to raise your hand, but don't say anything unless I call on you. And if, you, if I do, say it real loud. What would you say good is? What is good? What's good, Levi? Oh, you should have had it on the tip of your tongue. What's good? It's what? Like being nice to others. Being nice to others. What's good? Like God. God is good. Oh, listen to this is a theological kid right here. Stole my whole message. All right, y'all can go home. That's the message for today. I'm not just kidding. Come back here. We're staying here forever. <laughs> like, we're ready, Pastor Darrell. We're, we're going to go upstairs and do something fun instead of listening to you. Huh? Yeah, I get it. But people say all kinds of things are good. How many of you think ice cream is good? Yeah? All right. How many of you think Christmas is good? Right? How many of you think you are good? <laughs> Asher said, yep. Yep. That's me. I'm good. Right? So there's a lot of different ways that we use the word good. But I want you to know something. If you really want to know what good is, right here. Malachi had the answer. Malachi, that's your brother. Ezekiel had the answer. Right? He said, God is good. Say, God is good. good. Alright, so the last thing I'm going to do is remind you of the prayer that I taught you guys. Now, I don't normally like to teach kids just, you know, recited prayers, but I think this is good for you. Alright? Say, God is great. God is great. God is good. God is good. Now we thank Him, now we thank him for, our for our food. Amen. Amen. Boston, do you think you can remember that prayer? No, you can't? Well, well, we'll get your dad to repeat it to you a couple of times. All right, but that just tells you everything you need to know about God. God is great and God is good. And if you want to know whether something is really good or not, don't look at whether you feel it, Samuel. Look at whether it is close to God. Anything that's close to God is good. Anything that's far away from God is bad. Anything that looks to God is good. Anything that turns its back on God is bad. So if you said you were good, I'm assuming you follow Jesus. Hey, you want to hear something? Jesus. Yeah, there's Malachi. Here's something Jesus said. A man came up to Jesus and said, good teacher, what must I do to go to heaven? And Jesus stopped him and said, only God is good. Say only God is good. Only God is good. Remember that. God bless you guys. Go upstairs. So I don't know how long we're going to do this, as long as it takes for you to kind of get it and be blessed by it and so forth. But uh, this is actually the third chapter in my book, um, and uh, it starts off with this idea that I just re repeated with the kids. Say, God is great. God is, great. God, is good. God is good. And hopefully you're thankful. But, you know, that defines who God is. So the first week, we just focused on God is. And we saw that there was one fellow named Anselm who said that's the very def definition of God, that he's great. He said, um, God, if there was anything greater than God, then that would be God. So that which is the greatest thing that you can conceive, right, that is God. God is that which no greater can be conceived. Say, God is, God is. that which, that which 
No greater can be conceived. You can't think of anything or anyone greater than God. That's the definition of who he is. And we looked at God's name in the Bible, which is I am, and it means that he is the self-existent one, the one who is behind all existence. So uh, something has always existed. It's either the universe or it's something else. Well, the universe hasn't always existed. So something powerful enough to bring the universe into existence has always existed. Something uncaused and powerful and intelligent. And God fits that description very, very well. God is the necessary being. The universe is not necessary. It's contingent. You are contingent. You depend on other things to survive. You need air. You need water. You need food. You need sleep, believe it or not. You need all those things or you can't survive. You are contingent. God is not. He's necessary. He's, he is the ground of all being. So that's important. If there was no God, there would be nothing else. Amen? God is. God is good. Well, last week, our God is great, excuse me. Last week we focused on God is great, but I, I took a particular um, uh, perspective on that. God is great, that's the very def definition of who God is. Any being that was capable of bringing the universe into existence out of nothing, that is out of nothing natural, out of his own resources, that's great. But I said God is great because he created you in his image with a free will and he has chosen to limit himself at the front door of your free will. So you are capable of resisting God, not because you're stronger than him, but because he has chosen to limit himself. Well, we're living in a fallen world, and that's my short answer to why there's a lot of evil in the world, even though there's a good and loving God. We're in a fallen world because human beings have chosen to resist God. They have chosen to, uh, to rebel against God, to pursue their own self-will instead of God's will. So we're living in a fallen world. And we'll examine that more thoroughly, uh, probably beginning next week. But uh, because of that, and because God had a plan when he created human beings, knowing full well that they would rebel against him, God also planned on coming to earth he also planned on sending his son Jesus to earth to, uh, to atone for all of the destructive actions of free will. So that's why Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to overcome that rebellion in us. So we receive that. We're thankful for that. We say, yes, God is great. God is good. Now we thank him. We trust in his son, Jesus. We open our hearts. We receive him into us. He gives us a new nature. That new nature produces right, right actions and right attitudes and, and right language, right words, right? And so uh, that's God's plan. Jesus, the incarnation of Christ, demonstrates clearly that God is capable of limiting himself because Jesus became fully human. He was fully divine and fully human, but he chose to empty himself of divine privilege and power and be completely dependent upon his father the way you're supposed to. That's very important. Now that's Christmas stuff, the incarnation, but that is the longer answer to the question, why is there evil in the world? God has chosen to limit himself because he has a greater purpose. He has a greater good, right? So today, God is good. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, you heard the kids say that. And, you know, of course, Ezekiel, theological little kid that he is, stole my thunder. Um, but listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. This is from his book, The Great Divorce. He said, there is but one good, that is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. That's really what this message is about today. So if you tune out the rest of this, remember that. 
So we say things like, oh, that tastes good, right? Oh, that felt so good. Wow, that was a good movie. In fact, I, I remember a lot of strange things and then there are things that I should remember that I don't. Anybody older like that? Yeah? You can remember something very clearly from when you were 12, but you can't remember something very clearly that you went into the other room to remember. That just happened to me this morning. Uh, Miss Mary's got some allergies and I had some allergy medicine upstairs. So I was like, hey, hang on a second. I'm going to go upstairs and do that. As soon as I got upstairs, I was, I was accosted by a number of children and they're so cute. And I was saying hi to them and everything. And I just lost my mind. I didn't remember why I went up there. And so I was just walking around in the hallway, dumbstruck. Why am I up here? And you know what you have to do when you, that happens, right? Yeah, backtrack. Got to go all the way back downstairs. And I opened this door. There's Miss Mary sitting there. I was like, oh, that's right. Okay, back upstairs. And yet, I can remember an incident from when Pastor Craig right here was 12 and his friend Scott Venable, who's now a pastor, and they were in my youth group and we were having uh, a, an, an after, uh, I guess we had seen a movie uh, or we'd done some activity, but we'd gone to Whataburger and it's this one up here on Buckingham, same one, and I can even remember where we were sitting. And they were talking about how a certain movie was good and I said, what do you mean by that? Do you remember this conversation? Because we use that term a lot. But when you say a movie is good, exactly what do you mean when that movie depicts and at times glorifies evil? Or doesn't give acknowledgement to God at all? So I would say that's not good. We're misusing the term. We're saying that movie was skillfully made. We're saying that movie impacted me emotionally. But to say that movie is good, no, there's a whole lot of things that we attach this word good to that are not good at all. And that's the problem. Good is kind of like the all-purpose utility word cool. Do you even use that word anymore? Does anybody use the word cool anymore? What does that even mean? Cool. It means I like it. It means it makes me feel good. It's, a lot, it's really a synonym for the way a lot of us uh, would use the word good. Um, but then we might say something like, well, well, she's a good person or I'm a good person. Those children believe they're good, don't they? I think your parents need to do a better job. <laughs> My child is good. What are you talking about, preacher? We're leaving. All right. So what is the primary meaning of good? Am I saying the same thing whenever I use the word? Is good an essential concept or is it merely a word I use to show that I have positive feeling about something? So widely used definitions of the term good include beneficial, pleasurable, successful, and happy. All of these are both subjective and selfish. Without an objective basis for good, that means something we can all look at and point to. We may agree or disagree, but we can point to something outside of ourselves and our own feelings. Objective, right? So without an objective basis for good, there's merely what is good for me and mine. However, in this subjective, you know, this internal feeling like selfish sense, what is good for me could well be harmful to you. My good, like my truth. Anybody hear people say my truth today? Yeah. Or that's your truth, right? Well, that could be your idea of evil. My idea of good could be your idea of evil. My idea of truth could be your idea of a lie. See, that's subjective. That's the problem. We don't have this objective basis for many of these things anymore. However, in that selfish sense, 
We're never going to come to a, an agreement and we're never going to be able to say, no, this is genuinely good and this is genuinely evil and we obviously should pursue the good and eschew the evil. So take a hot button issue like abortion. There are those who, who consider, quote, a woman's right to choose, unquote, uh, to terminate her pregnancy, good. There are actually ministers in churches who have been seen blessing abortion clinics, right? However, preserving unborn human life is good to those who are against abortion. So who is right? What is good? 18th century philosopher David Hume said the concept of good and evil is nothing more than what he called positive and negative approbation, meaning the terms are another, perhaps stronger way of expressing subjective likes and dislikes. You're just saying, I like that. I don't like that. And that's how a lot of people are using this term good, but it's a disastrous view. And we can see the disaster happening all around our society right now. If good is only in the eye of the beholder, then what is to keep a nation from upholding racism and genocide as good? And that was the case with the Nazis, right? Nazi Germany, that was the result of World War II. What is to st stop a culture from embracing pedophilia or rape as good? Who could say that sadism or masochism is bad to someone who genuinely believes one or both to be good? These may seem to be extreme examples and perhaps things that I shouldn't be bringing up in church, but there are already groups who would support such ideas. And it may not be long until this culture of ours shifts to support some or all of them, unless there is a consensus for recognizing an objective basis for good and evil. A consensus means that the majority of the people agree to that. And we once had a consensus. In our American culture and society, the majority of people once believe God is great and God is good and the God of the Bible is God. But increasing numbers of people are turning their back on that. And so as the result, their ideas of good are being influenced from other sources. So there's a fellow named Sam Harris. He's an atheist and he's written a book where he tries to uphold a morality that doesn't require God for it to be uh, uh, objective and held by most people. And in his book, Sam Harris says that human flourishing is what is good. Um, well, that means that whatever promotes happiness and growth for the general human population is the standard for determining good. This is kind of another way of fleshing out what was called utilitarianism in the 19th century. That is, the greatest good is the greatest good for the greatest number. But some might ask, you know, we're saying human flourishing is good. Some might ask about animals. What if they're flourishing? Eating meat makes many people happy and it's arguably healthy. However, that's certainly at odds with the interest of the animal being eaten, wouldn't you say? What if I am only concerned with my own happiness or that of my family and friends? On what basis would I concern myself with happiness and growth for billions of other people, all of whom are competing for resources? From this perspective, one could well support extreme measures in population control in order to ensure that there's enough to go around. And by the way, that is what progressives want to do. And this starts all the way in the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, for many years, the Chinese Communist Party only permitted citizens of China to have one child per family. When you say, well, how did they enforce that? If you became pregnant, ladies, with your second child, they forced you to have an abortion. And that was the case until very recently. Their population 
stabilized and then has suddenly declined, now they're encouraging families to have uh, two children or more again. So um, this idea of controlling the population would seem to support human flourishing, but that doesn't seem to be good. It's certainly not good for the child that gets aborted, right? What is good for me and mine may deprive others of life. Is it right to be forced to sacrifice your life or happiness for the good of humanity? Now, you may choose to sacrifice for others, but is it right for the government, for example, to force you to sacrifice yourself, your freedom, and so forth for uh, the happiness of other people? Human flourishing may be a good aim, but it cannot be the objective basis for good. It is ironic to observe that some who refuse to believe in a good God base their concept of good on what Christians attribute to God, and that is love, justice, righteousness, patience, and the like. Uh, recently, there have been several high-profile Christian leaders who have left the faith, but they have sought to maintain their status as quote-unquote influencers. These celebrities who were formerly Christians are now influencing others to be atheists. So where they were once passionate in their proclamation of Christianity, they're now equally zealous about their disbelief. The moral advice, however, of many of these erstwhile Christians sounds quite familiar. Be forgiving, love people, be compassionate. It sounds, well, like Jesus, doesn't it? Why promote Jesus' teachings? All that got him and most of his closest disciples was an excruciating death. If there is no good God, one could hold, as Ayn Rand famously, famously promoted in her philosophy of objectivism, that selfishness is the supreme virtue. Many agree with this. Why should I care about anybody else? Why in the world should I listen to influencers who once persuaded their followers to believe what they now repudiate? Who's to say they're right now? And they've proven, all they've proven is their own instability while affirming an objective good, but without any basis beyond an emotional appeal. The Greek philosopher Plato believed in a world of perfect forms above our own. And at the highest level of this theoretical world exists what he called the form of the good. This was Plato's effort to demonstrate that there is an objective good and it is above all. Plato's concept affirms the need for an impeccable objective standard for good beyond subjective human feeling and evaluation. Some have observed that Plato's world of flawless forms could be realized within the mind of a perfect God, the creator of everything. Apart from a good God, there is no objective good. Apart from objective good, oh, wait for it, there's also no objective evil. As philosopher William Lane Craig frames it, listen to this. It's a genius argument. I might have to re read it a couple of times, but I want, you to, I want you to listen to it. It's very powerful. If God does not exist, then objective good does not exist. Evil exists. Therefore, good exists. Therefore, God exists. It gives me the chills. That is a logical proof that the existence of evil, far from disproving a good and loving God, proves the existence of God. Because otherwise there is no evil. There's just what you like or don't like, or what you consider harmful to yourself and those that belong to you. But an objective good, and I think we would want an objective good and an objective evil, wouldn't we? I was listening to William Lane Craig debate Sam Harris 
last night. Just kind of, the, the Lord was sending these things my way. I love how he knows what I'm going to preach, and he just sort of pushes things my way, right? And so he's having this debate with Sam Harris, the, the human flourishing guy, and uh, he clearly demonstrated that human flourishing is not at all something that we would necessarily want to pursue, um, and that the, the very existence of evil he has is, he is placed in this book tells us that there is a good and loving God, because otherwise evil is just what you say it is versus what I say it isn't. And we need an objective basis for that. So in this debate with Sam Harris, uh, uh, Dr. Craig gave an incendiary example. Is it evil to torture a baby? Is that evil? Yes. Is that always evil? Is that evil no matter what? Yes. On what basis do you say that? Well, if I understand that God created us in his own image, that God loves us, and that God is the objective basis and standard, then I can say, yes, not only that, you're going to be judged for it. And there's a hell waiting. Now, that might sound horrific to you, but there's all sorts of evil people out there in the world. And I pray that you are able to avoid all of them. But nonetheless, in order for us to say with other than uh, gathering a group of people that will agree with us, and so now we've voted this is good and this is evil, to say, no, this is always evil. Here, here's the thing. In Nazi Germany, the Nazi party was allowed to do what it did and persuaded the majority of German citizens to believe that the Jews were evil. Are you ready for this? It's happening all over again. Have you seen the rise in anti-Semitism under the guise of supporting Palestine and Palestinians? I think we can agree that people are people. Is that agreeing? Okay. That they're, of, they're all of value. Whether they call themselves Jews or whether they call themselves Palestinians or whether they call themselves some other nationality or ethnicity uh, or identification, they're all people and they're all made in God's image, and they are all deserving of respect. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Certainly. So I would agree that the Palestinians, uh, if that's what they would like to be called now, and that's uh, a recent designation, by the way, as of the earlier part of the 20th century, um, are deserving of respect and are deserving uh, of uh, a place and are deserving of the ability to, uh, to thrive just like everybody else. But see, what you have is you have a rise in anti-Semitism as the result of people's political viewpoint about Israel and the nation of Israel. And so what we see all over again, and, and in fact, uh, you see uh, folks that are uh, the extreme right among Muslims who are spouting some of the same racist anti-Semitic views that the Nazis were spouting. So. If you get into a tribe that all agrees that something that is evil is good, that doesn't make it good, does it? It's still evil. Anti-Semitism is evil. It doesn't matter how you want to frame it. It's still evil. Hurting people is evil. But the basis that we have for that is not just feelings. It is that there is a good and loving God who created all human beings in his image. And as the result, we are deserving of mutual concern, compassion, care, and respect. Um, I don't teach anymore, but I substitute taught for many, many years. In fact, I considered getting my secondary teacher certification and even went through the initial process of doing that in Arizona. 
Um, it was obvious that the Lord wanted me to, to preach the gospel, but I thought that I would do what Pastor Craig is doing. Well, he's moved beyond teaching now. He's uh, a principal now. But I would work in the schools, and then I would also work in a church context. But the Lord led me a different direction, so I didn't conclude uh, the uh, teacher certification that was necessary in Arizona. But I began substitute teaching, and I began doing that in 1986, and I substitute taught until 2008. When I was substitute teaching in the schools here in Garland, uh, I got into the habit around 2004, actually it was probably about the time we moved to downtown Garland. Um, I got into the habit of following the same routine when I walked in front of a classroom. So uh, the kids see there's a sub and they say, yes, till they find out it's Mrs. Cotrera. And then they're like, no, she's like a regular teacher. She's not gonna let you get away with anything. They say, yes, we can get away with stuff, right? So when they walked in the room and they sat in their little chairs, I would have in large block letters printed on the board, used to be chalkboard and then dry erase board, and I don't even know if they have those anymore. Is it just all on computer now? Whiteboard. Whiteboard. I would write the word, the word respect in huge letters. And I would say, now, what I want you to understand is that I believe that you are deserving of respect. Not because you've earned it, but because, and I would say this, because you're made in the image of God. And I said, you don't have to believe that to benefit from it. I'm going to give you respect and I'm going to expect that you will return that respect to me. That's kind of the way I do life. People that don't return respect to me don't end up being my friends. I would do things for them if they needed something done for them, but I'm not gonna trust them, right? That's really the, the cornerstone of civilized society. And I would say that to these classes as well. You choose to offer people the respect that you want to receive. That's the golden rule. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. You need to have self-respect so that you can offer people the respect that you expect to receive, right? So we need to understand that no matter who we evaluate. And by the way, this includes your political opponents. I don't know where you are, but I just see a whole lot of people calling the other side morons. Jesus said that's wrong. You do realize that, right? Jesus said, you heard it said, if you're angry with your brother, excuse, excuse me, you've heard it said, you shall not kill. But he said, I say to you, if you're angry with your brother, if you're angry enough to say moron or empty head, then you are liable to the court. You're even liable enough to be thrown into hell. That's what Jesus said. And yet I see people who are dissatisfied with the governor's position on masks, for example, or who are dissatisfied with Clay Jenkins' opposition to the governor on masks, for example, use terms like idiot, moron, stupid. Really? I may disagree with one of those, but if I use terms like that, then I'm not respecting that other person, am I? I'm not offering them the respect that maybe they are not acting in such a way that I believe would deserve it, but they're made in the image of God. And these that are in positions of authority at least are deserving of respect because they hold that position of authority. And so if you want to be treated respectfully when you're in a position of authority, if you're the boss or if you're the teacher or if you get put in some other position of authority, then you need to demonstrate that by offering respect to these people, even your political opponents. If you oppose them, then say why you oppose them. Don't just call them names. Name calling indicates that you don't really have an argument. It just indicates that you feel strongly the opposite of that particular person. 
So um, I'm going to read that argument one more time just so you'll get it. If God does not exist, then objective good does not exist. Evil exists. Therefore, good exists. Therefore, God exists. Amazingly, that syllogism uses the existence of real evil as reason to believe there is an objective good and a real God. God defines what good is. Does that mean that whatever God says is good becomes so? What if God just decided murder was good? Would that mean that it would be good? That's not what I'm saying. Could he simply reverse the Ten Commandments because he feels like it? If you find that problematic, then God is accountable to the law outside himself. And there are those that think that, no, God has to obey the law, but God established the law, right? So going back to Plato once again, we find that he and his students wrestled with this problem and stated it in what is known as the Euthyphrio Dilemma. A dilemma means that there's two choices and neither one of them is a, an obvious one or even a, uh, a logically uh, persuasive one. So here's how the Euthyphrio Dilemma goes. Is it good because God wills it? Or does God will it because it is good? If it is good because God wills it, then God could call evil good and it would be so. But if indeed God wills it because it's good, then God is sub subject to something higher, which would mean that that something rules over God, which would make that something else God, which would make him less than the supreme being. So are we stuck on the horns, on the horns of that dilemma? Well, let's go to the teaching of Jesus to resolve it. And now, uh, this is where that, that verse comes in, uh, Felix. This is Luke 18, 18, and 19. Jesus is approached by a man that is usually called the rich young ruler. Uh, he's uh, listed in three different gospels. In one, he's called rich, and one, he's called young, and in the other, he's called a ruler. So we just call him the rich young ruler. So he comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus this question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you would think Jesus would immediately come back to him with the answer to the question, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, in the end, he told the man that he had the commandments and needed to obey the commandments. The man said, I've done that all my life. And Jesus said, good. Then what you need to do, actually, he didn't say good. He said, what you need to do is sell everything you have and come follow me if you want to be perfect. And the man, it says, went away sad because he had much property. He owned a lot. He was very, very rich. But I want to just look at these two sentences here. The rich young ruler recognizing that Jesus is good. And I almost want to see Jesus saying, what are you trying to say here? If Jesus is good, he is good because he is one with God. Amen? Yeah. That's what Jesus was saying. Only God is good. And so whenever you use that term, whenever you appeal to that idea, I want you to see whether it flows from God and his truth, because if it doesn't, then it's not really good. If it doesn't come from God, it's not good. God is good. God is essential. Good, excuse me, good is essential to God's nature. Um, in Ephesians 1.11, it says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. God wills what is good because he is intrinsically good. There's that word again. We have this barbecue place down here that if you just read on the wall, you'll find out what they're called intrinsic, right? Barbecue and beer, intrinsically Texan. That means that they're part of what we are. Well, this is intrinsically God. God is great. God is good. That's intrinsic to his nature. It's essential. It's not external to him, right? So God is not willing something 
to be good because there's some law above him or outside him, nor would he will something that would actually be evil. God is good, just like he is the essence of existence. He is the basis for good. God himself is. God established a moral law, which is revealed through the law of Moses in the Old Testament. But good is perfectly realized in God, the only begotten Son, in Jesus. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's John 1:17. Whoever believes in the only begotten Son of God walks in the light of perfect good. Jesus said, God is, excuse me, this is, I'll get to Jesus in a second. This is 1 John 1, 5. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's 1 John 1, 5. Then Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. God is light. And when we walk following Jesus, we walk in the light. And when we don't, the further we get from God, the further into darkness and evil we get. Well, God promised to write his law on the minds of his people. We find that in Jeremiah 31, 33, so that they will always know what is good. He promised to give them a new heart so that they will always be willing to do what is good. That's Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 26. These promises are realized when a person believes in Jesus and receives the Holy Spirit. He gives you a new heart. He writes good onto your, the center of your being, right? Your, the, the center of your will, we would say, is your heart. And so when you have allowed Jesus to be your Lord, it's not this external set of standards that you're following. Well, I follow Jesus. I've got my what would Jesus do bracelet. Hmm, what would Jesus do in this situation? Here's what I'm going to say to you. If you walk in the light as he in this, is in the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses you of all sin. And you will have fellowship with one another. That's in 1 John chapter 1 as well. When you follow Jesus, you will not walk in darkness. If you really, really sit back and think about it and flow with that first instinct that you have as a Christian, you know what right and wrong is. You know what you're not supposed to do. And you know what you are supposed to do. It's when you start arguing with yourself because you have these external uh, desires, right? Your flesh wants to argue. No, you know right and you know wrong. And you don't have to have a commandment that you quote. You know that if you have allowed Jesus to come in because he's given you a new heart. He's given you a, a renewed mind. When we get into the world and we start watching all these trashy movies and listening to all this horrific music, where it's pumping these other messages into our head. We're playing video games where we're, we're killing people and thinking this is a good idea. We're scarring our consciences and we're drifting dark, deeper and deeper into darkness and further and further into evil. And then we begin to delude ourselves and we begin to argue with ourselves and with God as to what good is. But if you will stop, if you will pay attention to your conscience that has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, then you do know what right is and you do know what wrong is. Further, God will give you the courage to follow that conscience, to follow what is right and turn away from what is evil. So God is good. Would you agree? Yes. Say God is good. God is Jesus is God. Would you agree? Yes. Say Jesus is God. And if I follow Jesus, 
I too will be good. Amen? Amen? So that's what I would encourage you to do. Follow Jesus with all your heart. If you've never given up, given your will over to him, do that this morning. Open your mind, open your heart, invite Christ to come inside and be your Lord. Be the one that's in charge. Be your master and let him rule you and lead you. And you'll be a happier person than you ever thought possible. Doesn't mean you won't go through difficulty, but you will have a friend that sticks closer than a brother who takes you through the difficulty. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your people that are here today and those that have joined us online. And uh, I do pray, Father, that each and every one of us will come to know you through your son, Jesus, and genuinely realize, not just agree externally, but realize within that you are good and that we need you if we're going to be good. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen.